What would you do if your mom asked you to help reverse her osteoporosis naturally? Our guest heretic, Dr. Laura Kelly, explains what she did when her mom approached her with this task. From plotting out a game plan to exposing mushrooms to sunlight, she reveals the exact steps she took to help her mom get her bone density back on track in only 15 months. Now Dr. Kelly is releasing her book, The Healthy Bones Nutrition Plan and Cookbook, which shows you how to create your own bone density game plan while enjoying an abundance of deliciously sinful real foods. Meet Gina. Gina wanted to lose weight, so she spent two years fasting, detoxing, and dabbling with vegan diets while practicing a shit ton of yoga to lose 25 pounds, but it took so long that nobody noticed. Then, Gina started Frenching her food by eating fatty cheeses, butter, sausages, and red meat, and lost 15 more pounds in only two months. Everybody noticed this time. Frenching your food unlocks the riddle of weight loss that skinny French chicks use to slim down, look young, and live longer despite doing everything wrong. Be like Gina. Start Frenching your food today by visiting nutritionheretic.com forward slash Frenching. Fat is bad for you. I just pop a pill and I'm fine. Meat is murder. <laughs> it's time for bad food punishment. It's time for real nourishment. It's time for the nutrition heretic. The following program is provided as information only and may not be construed as medical or health advice. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. No action or inaction should be taken solely on the basis of the information provided here. Please consult with a licensed healthcare professional or doctor on any matter relating to your health and well-being. Hello and welcome to the Nutrition Heretic. This is Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. And uh, today, uh, yet again, I'm starting off with one of my pet peeves. Actually, it's not even so much a pet peeve as, as much as it is an experience that uh, totally took me by surprise. Uh, as many of you, if you've listened to the first few episodes in particular, you know that uh, I've been at this game for over 20 years. And, and the way that I came to it was through my own health problems. Like I have said before, the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist is that a dietitian generally decides uh, to be a dietitian sometime in high school when they want to lose some weight and then they follow the food pyramid and they lose the weight and they're happy. Uh, nutritionist, on the other hand, tends to be someone who has had severe health challenges and uh, usually while thinking that they're doing the right thing by following the food pyramid and then uh, finds out the truth that something else was uh, was uh, more effective at achieving overall health and that's why they become nutritionists. So that's why I'm a certified nutritionist today. But in any case, when I first uh, started to learn about what I call real nutrition, uh, was in, I was about 25 and I was diagnosed with a huge host of health conditions, uh, from food allergies to heavy metal toxicity, uh, candida albicans, you name it, I had it. Uh, my thyroid was out of whack, but also I had low bone density, 
which totally blew me away because I was 25 years old. That's not supposed to happen until you're 60 or 70. I in my mind. Uh, and I found out that it was uh, actually extremely common. Uh, and uh, I had no signs, nothing that uh, pr- really tipped me off uh, to having low bone density. But chances are it had a lot to do with the super low fat, super politically correct, avoiding real food in favor of stuff that came out of a lab because that was the stuff that was supposed to be good for me. Uh, and as a result, I ended up taking, uh, actually not, well, I, besides fixing my diet, I also, uh, was taking a supplement, uh, that was calcium focused, uh, but still more of a multivitamin. So it did have a complement of other nutrients and I upped my intake of, uh, unpasteurized dairy. I also drank a lot of mineral water. And consumed just more nutrient dense food, foods that we are often told we should not be eating because they have too many calories. But as you know, calories are not the only thing food is comprised of. So we try not to even look at calories. As a matter of fact, I encourage you to stop using the word calories and referring to food as energy units, because that's ultimately what we want to get out of our food. We want energy. Calorie is this kind of villain type term. I want you to start thinking of your food more positively in terms of what kind of energy comes through your food to you. So on that note, today I have my guest heretic is Dr. Laura Kelly, who is a doctor of oriental medicine. She is the author of Healthy Bones Nutrition Plan and Cookbook. And uh, Dr. Laura, welcome. Hi, Adrian. Thanks. Uh, I wanted to, um, obviously, I wanted to have you on the um the show because this is a really important topic. How common is it for people to find out that they have low bone density in their 20s? Um, Like you said, it's much more common than you'd think, Um, especially with as people have gone away from whole foods diets and uh, and as sort of the mechanical age came around, um, it just becomes more common. Right, right. And, you know, the first line of your book, I thought, was so powerful. Uh, and if you don't have that in front of you, I'm going to say, <laughs> I'm going to read it to you, I don't. <laughs> which is despite the millions consumers spend on calcium pills and the number of prescriptions for bone loss drugs they fill, uh, worldwide, there is an osteoporotic fracture every three seconds. That's it's a, nuts. It's, it's high. It's really high. It's a hard, it's a, it's a big problem and it's just really getting bigger. Um, we haven't really seen the effects of it at all in Asia yet. It's it's to come. Right. So right yeah. as they begin to a- adopt a more um, uh, progressive diet, let's say. <laughs> That's a nice way to say it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because you know, I see uh, uh, my family is is actually Chinese Jamaican, and in my uh, Jamaican side of the family, when I visited them, they didn't what their you know so many of their native foods are and i mean in a way they do uh but at the same time they're they're consuming things that are just pure sugar water and uh you know the vegetable oils things that they don't even have the money to spend 
on. You know what I'm saying? Right. There's, there used to be coconuts just hanging right over their heads. They're not using those. They're going to the right. supermarket and buying uh, these these other oils. But I, I did get uh, one of my cousins at least to start making her own coconut oil again uh, oh, right. because right. she uh, she had arthritic type conditions. And what happened was I said, she's like, well, what could be causing it? And I said, well, you know, think of it as lubrication. What, what would you prefer to have lubricate your joints? And, uh, so we, you know, discussed it and she was like, well, you know, it's easier to do that than to, you know, it's cheaper at least, you know, than to go to the supermarket and buy vegetable oil. And a few weeks later, she called me up and said that her joint pain was completely gone. Oh, uh, and, and meanwhile, her brother who has the same condition, uh, he was relying on bee stings. He was, you know, he, he owns the shop. So he was, you know, he had the stuff sitting there on the shelf and he was, he's just couldn't be convinced that traditional oils were, were good for him. Mm. So, um, that's a frustrating concept that you bring up. It's like, there's all this information. And if you, one of the things I did in sort of researching the book and getting to the root of what is the cause, what are the multiple, of course, causes of all of the situation is that you look back at ancient diets and ancient food practices and you see that somehow around the world everybody knew to ferment their grains. Yeah. <laughs> somehow everybody knew to sprout their beans. And, and this just happened and this was part of the culture and this is what you did. And all of that information just simply got lost. Absolutely. Actually, there's a really interesting book. I believe it's called The History of Food and you're talking about fermenting. And I believe it was a monkey. I forget what kind of monkey that it was, but they found that, that when they followed this monkey, they found that it would soak its uh, sweet potatoes before eating it. Oh, cool. And Great. I'm thinking to myself, yeah, see, even monkeys know this. <laughs> right. right. Um, so tell me, uh, tell us about uh, the story behind the book uh, with your mom and and how you helped her. And, and, you know, that's that's really how the book came to fruition, correct? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, my mother uh, had pretty severe bone loss for about 20 years. Whoa. Um, and she never, she's sort of a naturally minded type, although she never really used any type of alternative medicine. She just didn't really want to use pharmaceuticals and she'd never taken any hormone replacement either. Um, and finally her doctor said to her, listen, your bones are so, are, are, are thinning so rapidly. If you don't take these drugs, I don't think I can treat you anymore. And he was talking about the reclassed shot, which is a, a you know, I think it's a once yearly shot. So she started looking into the drugs and decided that she did not want to take them, but she had no options because there's really no other information available on what do you do. So she called me and she said, listen, I know you're in school, but can you help me with this issue? And I said, yes, I'm sure I can, but I need a couple of months. I need to really delve into it, wrap my head around it, get to the root of, you know, why are there so many fractures in, in, in the U.S.? Where are there low fractures? What countries have a history of low fracture and why? So uh, I delved into all of that. I basically took a fracture map of the world and said, what's going on here? <laughs> and, um, of course, it has to do with diet if, when you get to the bottom of it. And the thing that I realized is that uh, the diet, nutrients, vitamins, minerals, are the fundamental tools of medicine. If you're talking about building tissue or keeping tissue healthy, the fundamental tools of medicine are nutrients. And so I said, well, I'm going to learn how to use these fundamental tools of medicine. And so I did it through the lens of 
of bone density, came up with maybe a nine, sort of nine pieces that fit together to explain, because there's not ever any one cause, right? Right. Same way as there's never any one fix. There are multiple ways to do everything. So I came up with a number of issues and I said, look, here are the things that are wrong or that could could be improved. Um, and let's start you on this on, on these things and see what, what works for you and how it, how it affects you. And uh, to within 15 months, we had stopped the bone loss for the first time in 20 years. Wow. So she went back to her doctor and she said, um, she said, here. And he said, well, that's a fluke. <laughs> Of course. Yeah, of course, because, you know, <laughs> this never, you know, the body doesn't want to heal itself. We right, all know this, right? The body, the, the body is always trying to, to sabotage you and break you down. <laughs> <laughs> right. So at the same time, she had gone to her cardiologist and she had had some severe plaque deposition in her carotid artery. And uh, the cardiologist said, well, there seems to be a lot of clearance in this. What have you been doing? And my mother said, well, I've been working on my bones. So uh, one of the side effects of, of, you know, working on bone density was that the calcium was actually now being cleared out of where it wasn't supposed to be and going to where it was needed. Right. So it, it's just a question of really like helping, like, you know, helping the body do exactly what it wants to do is basically what I, the way I look at it. This is what I... I said at the outset, I have pet peeves up the wazoo when it comes to mainstream science, uh, and or as I like to call call it, paid for science, <laughs> because right. it, it often does not, I, I don't know if it ever looks at worldwide uh, rates, honestly, if, if they do, first of all, that's, that's, that's a big issue is, is the, uh, the dishonesty in mainstream medicine. Uh, because the few times that they do claim they're looking at what's going on in, you know, Okinawa or wherever, uh, they seem to narrow it down to things that they can retrofit into the paradigm they've already set as being truth. Right. Right. Uh, so what I really like about this is that you, you listened, uh, to, you looked around and you and you you made a map. You 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 know just like an old fashioned, just like how they 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 fixed cholera in London, right? They they made right. a map of where everybody <laughs> right. was getting sick, right? And, and figured out why. And figured right. out why. So I mean, it just makes sense that we have to instead of going forward and always looking for uh, an answer out there. You know, I'm right. making big hand gestures here. Uh, maybe we need to look backwards or, you know, to uh, what's already been proven, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Right. And yeah, that, I mean, that like, seems to be like missing we link. About, oh, sorry. Like we were talking about before, it's just the, the, the ideas that have been lost with food. I mean, you know, I mean, there's, there wasn't any training in Western medical school for a very long time up until relatively recently in nutrition. And like I said, you can't really argue at this point that the fundamental tools of medicine for the human body are nutrients. I right. mean, there just isn't any way around that at this point. Exactly. And, and, and what, what would you say to those people who say, well, you know, the weight-bearing exercise, that's where it's at. That's, that's what you need to do. How, how big of a role does the exercise and, and weight-bearing play in this? I mean, if we don't have the tools is what I'm thinking, doesn't matter how right. much freaking exercise you do. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, the thing is, is like I, there's so many pieces involved and it's all it's all one cycle and one system. And you can you can step into that cycle at any point and improve it. But it, if you're missing certain pieces, this, the improvement is not going to be as great. Right? Mm-hmm. So specifically with exercise, for example, there's a very strong uh, exercise is greatly enhanced and the effect of exercise on the bone is greatly enhanced in the presence of estrogen or phytoestrogen. doesn't okay. have to be endogenous uh, personal estrogen. It can be from a plant. Okay. But the exercise is really well enhanced in the presence of phytoestrogen. So if you have a very high plant-based diet, um, a lot of sprouted sort of sprouted vegetables and things like this, and you exercise, you're going to get a much greater benefit. So even in even for example in japan the calcium intake averages and this is another thing i looked at trying to decide what are the proper recommendations for nutrients because i can't just say here's what you need i need to help you figure out how much right right and you can't go off of the usrda because that was established at world war in world war 2 yes. for people who went overseas for them to not get rickets right? right and not getting rickets is a is a very different thing than preventing chronic disease there's right. a big there's a big space in there. Right. And, and I mean, we're also looking at at uh, young men who are, you know, what, 18 to 26 on average, who <laughs> are not right. representative of a 40-year-old woman. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, you have to, so there's, there's all of these pieces that fit together. And it's exercise, absolutely key, important to, for for all kinds of health issues for mm-hmm. for all health for all long life exercises there's no there's nothing that compares to that um but it has to be as part of the system and part of the cycle of overall health right right you actually brought up a, a something that was one of the questions i wanted to ask and you talk about sprouting uh now i've heard of very many things about sprouting. Uh, There is, for example, a book on tooth decay and how to remineralize your teeth. uh, The author of that book actually uh, advises against sprouting because he believes that it uh, potentiates a lot of the anti-nutrients in uh, you know, that that's where the the anti-nutrients are at their strongest in the plant cycle. Uh, Is there you know, where, when you say that sprouting is good, is there a certain level of balance that you can go over where that's becomes the problem? Or are you just seeing it as a totally different, from you a know, totally I, different angle from him? Well, I, I think a totally different angle. I don't know. I haven't looked at the science on that. Um, all I know, is, I know from what I've read and from what I've researched is that when the, when the bean or the seed is in its sort of dormant state, there, there is a structure which is an acid that holds all of the nutrients, all of the minerals bound up, and it's that waiting being... for it. It's waiting, like the calcium and the phosphorus and right. the magnesium. So it's waiting for the for the plant to sprout when it will need nutrients. Mm-hmm. So wh- when the plant starts to sprout, the the structure breaks down okay. with an enzyme called phytase, and it releases those nutrients. So uh, I don't see how it become they become less available in that situation because they're free for the plant to use and they're free for you to absorb. Right. Uh, my, my understanding is that it's, uh, it's because, and this, this actually goes into something else that I, I've been, uh, I've had a few experts on the show about, uh, 
replenishing grasslands, for example. And uh, one of the things that uh, seems to be a parallel is that in that stage is when the plant is voraciously hungry. Mm. Uh, so I guess the, I, the idea is that it's sort of like a growing embryo, right? That's when the baby mm. makes its most development is during that, that first stage. And it's really just packing on the, the nutrients and the pounds, you know, wherever it, it can get, get the, mm. um, Mm-hmm. the tools to do that. So right. I think that, I think that's the, the idea behind that. So that's why I, um, I wondered where your understanding of that comes in. Now, how th- this also leads to another question, which is that if someone has had rampant tooth decay, how mm-hmm. indicative of that, uh, of their bone density could that be? Pretty, they're pretty correlated. I mean, it's the same sort of tissue deposition and it's the same requirements for mineralization. So I think that, um, they, they go hand in hand quite often. Okay. So, so if I'm not saying we're obviously not making any promises, but if someone is uh, remineralizing their bones, they should, and they have had active tooth decay, they may actually see a reduction in that as well. My guess is that they would see a reduction in it. Yep. Right. Okay. Awesome. So you brought- well, back back to the back to oh, the sprouting issue just quickly. I I mean I I know that there I mean for each different sort of seed or bean there are different sprouting times that you need to wait. So you need to wait two days for certain beans and five mm. days for certain. They need to reach a certain level of maturity before they're actually considered safe. And you know if you're doing everything absolutely one hundred percent according to the book, which isn't entirely necessary, right? Everything is a balance. Right. But. A, but the point being that there are different sprouting times for different beans, like red kidney beans. You really definitely want to get them to their to their sprouted state, or you don't you don't want to eat them. So I think that perhaps within those those time periods, maybe it's taking into account what you were speaking of before. That's a, that's an excellent point because sometimes you know we just use these terms very loosely, and it, you know a sprout is not necessarily a sprout in someone else's definition so exactly. or or an exactly okay that's that's actually really important and i'm glad that you brought that up uh yeah. because i don't want people to necessarily you know walk away saying oh no that's a crock of right. shit because it deserves sprouts because there there is too much of this kind of you know good food bad food and th- that's right. my number one rule is that if you want to be helpful um if you want to help your body don't ever rule anything out. Stop putting labels on on the real food. Put the labels on the crap that has right. destroyed your health. Don't put labels on good food because what was your enemy yesterday could be your best friend today. <laughs> right. right, for sure. Can I can I say one more thing yes, about of that? Course. The reason why I, I brought up the sprouts to begin with when I was talking about phytoestrogen is that in you know very very long time ago in China. Uh, food was medicine, right? This yes. was the original way that you treated. And you, you would, that was your first line of defense. And if you didn't do it with that, then maybe you moved to acupuncture and herbs, right? Maybe, you know? So one of the things that was, uh, soy was a, was a medicine. And especially in the soy sprout form, because when you sprout the soy, it increases the phytoestrogen content significantly. And so that was used to treat women's issues or lactation issues and things like this. Um, so that's why I was mentioning the sprouting earlier with, to do with phytoestrogen. And I think it's interesting to start looking at, you know, again, how do you use foods to treat various issues in a more refined way, you know? Right, right. That's, um, that's actually, yeah, that's, that's, um, I love that. It, 
how you say in a more refined way <laughs> because, yeah. because well because a lot of times you know again it's that that mentality of good food bad food oh this is good for me and then they just go crazy so it's and that's not very refined you know, to not just to just throw things at um at yourself and the other thing that i like uh, again coming back to what we said earlier about the the way that you you uh studied uh, the the condition for your mom's sake was that you said, hold on, we're not going to do anything until I really fully understand this. And yeah. especially in the day of the internet, it's really easy for people to just go online, grab the first three articles they read on whatever subject and say, this is what I'm going to do. So then they, you know, next they stop at Amazon and they buy like 500 different kinds of supplements and, <laughs> right. and, you know, a couple of books that have great reviews from the best friend of the person who wrote the book <laughs> right. Right. With, with different right. logins. And, and then they decide that like, you know, this is how I'm going to proceed. And a week later they give up because. Right. And then they come and see someone like me with their bag of supplements and they go, what am I supposed to do with all of these? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's what happens. And you're like, okay, well, let's, we have to start again, you know, because you're, you, you, we have to build this base from the bottom up. You can't just throw stuff at it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, um, what's the difference you brought up two terms, um, other than osteoporosis, you talk about osteopenia. Can you, can you elaborate on the differences between those two? Terms. Sure. Osteoporosis is basically uh, when you're entering the phase of there's a, uh, a measurement which says you have you're far enough below sort of the standard 30 year old to start to potentially run into fracture problems. And so that's osteoporosis. And osteopenia is a lesser version of that where you're saying, well, your bone density is less than it should be. Um, and if we don't start addressing this issue now, you may it will progress most likely into something more severe, which would be osteoporosis. Okay, so that's the early stage osteoporosis. Event. It's early stage, yeah. Okay, so it's it's the hypoglycemia to your diabetic. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and, and it's uh, so then it, I'm assuming it's much easier to deal with osteopenia to catch it early. Sure. And, and yeah, to address I mean, it then. Or, or do you find that people are resistant because they're like, well, I'm not in the, I'm not in the doghouse yet. And they're like, you know, Twinkies. <laughs> well, what? In general, it's very hard for people to make changes. Yes. <laughs> you know, especially sort of dietary health changes. So um, it just, it really doesn't, I've seen across the board sort of people, you know, it just depends on where you are and what's important to you. You know, I mean, I have patients come in and they tell me, I am not compliant. I don't do anything. I never take any supplements that, that people tell me to take. I'm a terrible patient. And they end up being amazing patients. Right. You know? Well, admitting and it is half the battles. <laughs> <laughs> and then those people who come in and they're like, I want to do everything I can. And then they f- just... I I see them a month later and like, oh, yeah, I forgot to take that stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, I mean, all I can do is give you the information. You know, I can't hold your hand through it. So it's entirely up to them. Yeah, that's what people like me are for. I like (laughs) put them through boot camp. (laughs) (laughs) No, what are we here for? But I I heard a statistic recently that uh, I think it was less than 10%. uh, And it doesn't matter about food, whatever you know, area we're talking about, only 10% of people ever follow through on the stuff they say that they want and they need and that, you know, is so important to them. Right. Uh, so that's... Well, uh, 
you know, part of the problem is probably like what you spoke of before. It's just like there's so much information everywhere and everybody has an opinion and there's so many books and, and there's great, you take this and you're going to live forever. And, you know, and that all is great and it's really exciting and it's really, you know, seductive. Right. But, um, you know, when you sit down and you say, you know, it's, it's again, I didn't want to write a book that was full of a lot of stuff like, hey, do this, hey, do that. I wanted to say, here's the, you know, here's the real information. I'm not making anything up here. I'm not, I'm not theorizing anything. I'm not coming up with a theory yes. that says, hey, if you do this, it's going to improve your bones. I'm not doing any of that. I'm saying, here are the basic requirements for tissue building. Mm -hmm. here, here are where we are in the U.S. based on the government looking at what deficiencies we have as a population. And here are the things that you can do to supplement those deficiencies and fix the problem. And I'm not like, I'm just giving information. Right. <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and, well, absolutely. And I, I really respect that because, uh, first of all, let's just back up a second. <laughs> you brought up <laughs> something really good, which is uh, these, you know, you, you, let's say somebody comes to you and you tell them, this is, we're going to lay out this plan, right? These are, these are, here's my book. Here are the things, you know, the worksheets and everything that's included. You know, this is how we're going to progress. And then they go home and they talk to their neighbor mm -hmm. who is like maybe 500 pounds overweight and, you know, just smokes and, you know, just horrible health, can't, can barely walk. And that person says, Oh, well, you know, what you really need is this. And, right. to, you know, well, oh, I had I had one person tell me recently, you know, the and you got to tell me what you think of this because I always thought it was outland an outlandish theory. You know, the uh, the first when when grains were first introduced, everybody died. Most of the people who ate it died, <laughs> and the only ones who survived are the ones that are alive today. And now we're having a problem again. Um, do you? <laughs> Do you believe that grains killed everybody? I mean, I think that our ancestors no, were a I lot don't. smarter <laughs> than, than, you know, to to eat something that was killing everyone. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think that's what happened. I mean, I wasn't there, but I, I, I would find that very surprising. I mean, grains are, you know, if you look back at sort of Egyptian literature or hieroglyphs or, or anything like this, um, you find grains being revered. Right. As so I don't, I, I would be surprised if that happened after they killed everyone. Right, exactly. You know, like everybody who died from it, you know, the, the ones who survived are the people who can tolerate it today. And I'm thinking right. to myself, this is like, where on the earth are you getting this freaking information? And she wasn't the picture of health. I mean, she was not. Right. I don't even think I'm the picture of health, but I look healthier than her. Right. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, really? Really? And I'm supposed to take this just hook, line, and sinker. Mm -hmm. um, so... Yeah, so we, we see a lot of this, this kind of stuff. And like you said, the ancient societies revered it, but they also learned how to prepare it. Key. Through, Key point. through yep. trial and error. And I always say that if there is a reason to, uh, give up grains, it's because of all the wars it caused, <laughs> because, you know, there were people fighting <laughs> over who, who controlled the grain supply. Uh, oh, I would actually say it's probably because of the, the, you know, genetic modification oh, well, yeah, slash pesticides. Those oh, absolutely. 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 I, you know, I, I try not to think of that, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's a definite, definitely a real consideration, which unfortunately not enough people are taking seriously enough. Uh, again, there, people get very, uh, blinded by this progress 
label and uh, the promise of what uh, genetic modification means. Right. Uh, and, well, one of the things one of the things we see with grains. I'm not the only practitioner that sees this either. Um, it's a sort of a common knowledge thing. A lot of American patients come in and say, "Well, you know what? I can't eat bread here. I can't eat bread. I can't eat pasta." And they go overseas, and they're fine. Exactly. That's so. That's exactly what so, I was about to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It really that really is true. That is what happens. Yeah. Absolutely. I, every time I go over overseas, I'm just like, bread, bread, <laughs> I need more bread <laughs> because, because I can do it here and not have to, you know, worry about what, what I'm going to feel like in the morning and then I gain five pounds. Uh, so yeah, it does, it makes a huge difference, which I think, uh, um, unfortunately in Europe, even though they, they have boycotted, for example, GMO, I don't think there's a, enough of an understanding by those Europeans who haven't lived in the U.S. Uh, uh, and I used Europe just because that's where I go to mostly. Uh, but I don't think that they, they understand quite the repercussions. So they might be reporting on stuff online, for example, and not taking into consideration that the bulk of their audience is in the U.S. and does not have access to this good you know, better quality grain that, that they have. Right. It's, this was something that I thought was, it, it bore spoken about, which is the connection between bone fractures and death. What's going on there? What, what causes, you know, bone fractures, spontaneously die, bone fracture, uh, depression, no will to live or yeah. something in between. Well, I mean, I think it's all it's all part of it. I mean, a lot of that those statistics have to do with hip fracture and elderly hip fracture because once you've fractured your hip, you're you're now fr fairly well immobile. Mm -hmm. And um I think if you're elderly and perhaps you're, you know, I mean, I've seen a lot of elderly patients who are living under the standard American diet, for example, or um just don't eat enough. Right. But their their nutrient status is very low, and your brain is not going to be functioning properly at that level. Right. So I think if you're if you're in a nutrient d deficit to begin with, and you're older, and then suddenly you're locked to your bed, um, you are going to have some form of depression, mm -hmm. even if it's just a nutrient deficiency depression. Right. Um, so I think that all of these factors sort of coalesce and then you just you see a lot of um, mortality related to, it's not related to the fracture specifically, but okay. they happen, um, you know, they sort of feed, up, feed each other into a situation where you don't recover. Right, right. And, you know, when you talk about uh, they're already eating the standard American diet, uh, they don't have much of an appetite. What automatically comes to mind is these low sodium diets they put people on uh, because we do need that 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 chloride <laughs> to to right, digest right. to digest our food and um, and to make it taste good for crying out loud. Right. There's so many right. elderly that I have cooked for and I cooked the way their moms cooked for them. And suddenly they have an appetite. They're eating, you know, three and four plates of food at, plus dessert because it's the first time they've tasted it in 50 right. years. Right. Right. Absolutely. And the other issue is that, I mean, I don't know, you know, sort of getting more specific on it. A lot of the, you know, elderly fractures, especially ones that happen in homes, for example, what they're being fed is basically uh, high fructose corn syrup Ugh. and 
at plus genetically modified soy product. Like that's what yes. they get fed. And I don't know how anybody <laughs> can be happy. <laughs> I, know, <right? laughs> I don't know. I mean, you're like your brain can't function using high fructose corn syrup. Yeah. Like it, your brain won't function on that. Absolutely. So, and forget about building any tissue, right? Right. So, I mean, there, there are sort of all sorts of problems, I think, that come along with uh, that, the elderly situation. Right. Yeah. And, and I know that when my mom was in a nursing home towards the end of her, her life, well, she was actually in a, quote, rehab center uh, because she fell. She didn't break anything, but she fell and she was she was, you know, going downhill from her own volition. But uh, it was uh, it was terrible because I walk in there and they are just putting every synthetic, like you said, high fructose corn syrup, you know, even yogurt, you know, like, come on, don't you just have plain yogurt, just yogurt with yogurt in it. (laughs) No, no, nothing else, (laughs) just yogurt. And so the next day I come in and the yogurt has A-sulfame K in it, which Mm -hmm. is like, wait a minute, wasn't that wasn't that taken off the market because it's poison? <laughs> like, right. this, I, <laughs> I didn't even know they made it back onto the market, but apparently the rehab centers have, have hold of it. Um, wow. uh, but, uh, and I, I'm recently a friend whose mom is in the hospital with uh, breast cancer. Same thing. She's like, are you serious? You gave my mom aspartame? Right. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a big problem. Yeah. I and, and, th- and these are the places that we're going to get well in. And right. when, when I talk to people again in Europe, Asia, they are having a, oh, we had a nice piece of steamed fish with fresh spinach. And I'm like, right. what in the hospital? <laughs> Cause, yeah. Cause when I had my baby, they gave me egg beaters and <laughs> margarine and some purple juice. <laughs> that was my, that was my welcome to the world baby breakfast right. that they they tried to shove down my throat yeah so yeah we're we're totally missing the mark so anyway sorry to kind of divulge uh from from your book um i wanted to find out more about or, or diverge it um from about uh, mushrooms and uh, this is something that i totally forgot tell, tell us about mushrooms and sunshine well uh mushroom my talkie mushrooms are the the are a version of uh sorry <laughs> My talkie mushrooms are a mushroom that actually make vitamin D in exactly the same way that your body does. Um, I don't know if your listeners know that vitamin D is made in your uh, in your body from sunlight. Yes. So uh, the the main source of vitamin D for all of humanity up until now has been sun. Yeah. Um, So mushrooms function in a very similar way. Um, They Chant, they transform the energy from the sun into the vitamin D. So maitake do that uh, in the exterior part, the top of the mushroom that, that is exposed to the sun. All other mushrooms will do that if you flip it over and expose oh. the gills to the sun. So they don't produce a huge amount of vitamin D naturally unless they get turned over or unless there's a reflector. Um, but it's very easy for you to bring home mushrooms and turn them over and put them in the sun for two days. And then you're, they're, they're going to turn into little vitamin D factories, and you can dry them and store them. And they produce a large amount of vitamin D. If you have a good serving of mushrooms that have been sunned and produced vitamin D, you're going to basically be covering yourself for the day. Wow. So it's pretty, it's pretty great. I mean, there's a, there's a difference. Your body, um, will, your body uses vitamin D3, yes. which is the version of, that is, for, is in animals generally speaking. And uh, vitamin D2 
is the version that's more often in non-animal products. Um, your body has to convert vitamin D2 into vitamin D3. So there's a little bit of loss. Um, and it's the same with sort of uh, uh, a lot of other vitamins. Their plant form you need to convert to animal form. But uh, there has been some speculation. There's been a little bit of people saying, well, maybe vitamin D2 is dangerous. Um, I, I don't really know about that. I've looked into it a lot and I haven't come to any conclusions. But what I did do is I looked at the vitamin D content of some uh, of a couple, couple of popular fish oils. And what actually turns out is that everybody says the fish oils are all vitamin D3 and that's what they are and everybody's fine with that. But that's not actually the case. I spoke uh -huh. with one of the producers of a very popular one and he said we were really surprised to find out that about half of the vitamin D in our fish oil is D2. Huh. So we don't, I, I, perhaps that comes from the plant matter that's being eaten by the codfish. Yeah. That's the only thing I can figure out. But so uh, I think that, the, again, it's just a translation issue. If you're only taking vitamin D2 from plants and you're not sitting in the sun, right. <laughs> um, then you need to have a little more of it. Um, but I think that that's the only issue. Yeah, I, I think there's also uh, there. It brings to mind uh, uh, quite a few questions. Uh, first of all, synthetic versus the real stuff, uh, because quite often when they're saying that something is toxic, even you know vitamin A is toxic because they're using synthetic vitamin A. Uh, and I believe the D2 scare came when they put D2 synthetic form in milk. Right. Uh, and right. of course, we're looking at not the nice milk on the farm. We're looking at the factory milk that's been ultra pasteurized and homogenized and right. is probably fat free because we do need some cholesterol to uh, assimilate and, and make use of our vitamin D. So right. I wouldn't be surprised if there's just a, there's a host of other factors that hadn't been considered in the vitamin D2 scare. And I think when a, a lot of people who do uh, prefer vitamin D, D2, for example, because they're vegan, because whatever, they're not necessarily getting a lot of the other factors that they need to convert that into D3. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I think you're probably right about that. So uh, let me see. We talked about grains and we talked about... Oh, you I know, wanted to, oh. Sorry. One thing about the vitamin A, just because you mentioned it, it's uh, one of the things that I did find was as I was starting to look at the research was that there was a lot of research that came early out of Norway mm. and Denmark and these northern uh, European countries, um, which incidentally have on par the highest um, osteoporosis rates in the world, on par with America. And um, one of the things that they initially were reporting was what you were saying, that vitamin A was toxic and that it was uh, detrimental. Too, too much vitamin A would cause bone loss. Uh -huh. And so that was touted for a long time and people were like, oh, okay, we need to not take vitamin A and all this stuff. But what actually happens is that if you look at the vitamin A status of these women and the vitamin D status of these women, mm. you find that they have... 40 times less vitamin D than they're supposed to have. It's what's called a vitamin D winter where there's no sun. Right. So you have a huge amount of vitamin A and no vitamin D. 
And yes, that is a detrimental situation. Right. Well, it's like <laughs> but, taking calcium without magnesium, which you point exactly, out in your book. It's exactly the same. It's a ratio issue. It's not an. It's not a vilifying one particular nutrient over another. It's a ratio issue. And this is another really important thing that came up again and again for me as I started to look at and try and figure out what are the proper recommendations for dosage of these nutrients. Mm-hmm. The other issue is what are the ratios of these nutrients? Because if you have to, if you happen to to live somewhere where you have a lot of sun. If you're living in Africa, you're going to have a lot of vitamin D. Well, you're probably going to need to up your vitamin A. Yeah. So, so it's sort of, it's a question of ratio, I think with all of this stuff. And that's something that is, I've never really seen formally addressed um, by anyone. And I think really is important. Don't you know that doesn't make money? (laughs) It doesn't make money. We need to keep people on on the hamster wheel, <laughs> just chasing, chasing, chasing after one remedy after another. Because you know, we, we they love to sell us this idea that it's just one thing. You're just missing that one thing, right? <laughs> no, nobody nobody thinks they have a couple of things to to work on. It's always just one thing, you know. And it's like, and you know, and then you look at them, and you're just like, where did all of this mess come from? Like all the all these health problems. This didn't come from just the missing one thing. Uh, so, um, but so, okay. So let's say I'm living in Norway and I'm dark, right? So I'm living in Norway. I've got the, the, uh, vitamin D winter. What, how many mushrooms should I be eating? <laughs> like, you know, how, how many mushrooms do I need to buy in the summer and stick in the sun? Before- yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, it depends on the mushroom. It depends on where you are latitude wise in terms of the, how direct the sun is. I can't give you a specific answer right. to that. But I can say that generally speaking, it looks like a good handful of mushrooms is going to be somewhere around 400, 500 IU of vitamin D. Okay. And vitamin D, again, um, is obviously super important. All nutrients are important. Um, one thing that is very key with vitamin D is that it, it's really about your blood levels mm-hmm. because there's a lot of, there are a lot of genetic variation to how humans process vitamin D. So depending on your genetic variation um, is going to depend how well or how poorly you process. So the same person may need an entirely different dosage of vitamin D to maintain the same blood level, if you see what I mean. Right. So so genetics of processing vitamins is really also a whole other layer of very important stuff. Um, But vitamin D in particular is one where blood level is really the answer. It's not like I need to take 5,000 units of vitamin D a day. What you need to do is you need to find out your blood level with your provider and work towards getting your blood level to the proper level. And again, that's going to be different for each person depending on their genetics. Right. And would you say that overall, because one thing that we hear constantly, those of us who have looked at all into vitamin D, which is that the standard tests are not that accurate as far as what they report to be sufficient. Would you say that's true or or is that, again, just dependent on the individual? No, I mean, the blood levels are going to be the same for everyone is, is, is true. I mean, it looks to be that the, the, the sort of base level of safety is somewhere around 32 and MOL. Right. Um, you're looking at something at at above that. I mean, I've, again, this is an ongoing research project for me and I'm sure for many other people, um, looking at what really is, is the, the, the sweet spot for each of these, um, nutrients. Um, there are a lot of reports looking at 50 as ideal for bone building, 
Um, so we're looking at some, if you start to look um, also at, one thing I did is I looked at a lot of different cultures across the board and, you know, people who live in Africa, people who live in Australia and across sort of history, looking at what are vitamin D sort of blood level status across the world. And they're quite different, mm. you know, they, they range from somewhere between 50 to like a hundred, well, you know, so yes. 150 or something like that. So it depends how, again, what are your genetics? What's the history of your, right, the history of your genetics, all that sort of thing. Right, right. Um, but I think it's looking like, and I feel relatively safe saying that you want to be above 32 and you maybe you want to be somewhere around 40, 50 for ideal bone building. That's right. where I am right now. Okay. And that could that could change. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. Some I've heard uh, many people say that you should be closer to 80 or 90. Uh, and yeah. so, I um, mean, you know, I don't know if that's just, you know, this is, this is, you know, vitamin D is my bag and I'm just going to tell you, you should go <laughs> up to 90 right. because I can. <laughs> that's all right, I right. Well, I'm, I am extremely conservative, um, in, in that regard. So I'm going to, I'm going to always err on the side of not the side of less, but I'm never going to say things that I don't know. And I'm never going to push it farther than I think it needs to be. Because I think, I mean, one of the things, okay, this is a larger subject, but in terms of longevity, right, mm -hmm. just sort of general longevity, the only, the only thing we know in science right now is that for sure, organisms live longer with dietary restriction. That is a pause, yes. that is a definite, right? right? So one of the things that that indicates is that the digestive system, the processes and the, the um, cascades and the pathways that get generated and turned on and off by ingesting nutrients um, lengthen or sh affect your lifespan. And it looks like, because if you're calorie restricting, you're living longer, the less you're going to ask your body to do in that regard, the right. longer it's going to work. <laughs> right, right. So I don't want to tell people, take all these nutrients, take all this stuff, take everything. It's great. Everything is fine. You know, I, I want to say, what's the, what's the base level we need to be 100% healthy? Right. And that probably a lot of that concept comes from your training in oriental medicine, too, I would say, because uh, the everybody likes to talk about oh, yeah, everything in moderation. <laughs> but when it comes right down to it, you know, they're they're still eating Doritos every morning for breakfast with their, you know, Dunkin Donuts coffee with seven sugars in it. Uh, right. So. But uh, yes, I think that from the from the Oriental perspective, there is a tendency to truly look at things in balance and truly see uh, kind of that homeopathic uh, dosing of nutrients to uh, keep. It's almost like it, it keeps the, the the body and and the immune system on alert. Don't you think mm -hmm. when it when it has to kind of figure it out as opposed to just being bombarded. With massive, right. with massive doses of vitamin D or vitamin A or what have you. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's definitely, a, um, that's an interesting concept for sure. Right. So um, now one thing that did surprise me a little bit was that you had, not so much that you had these recipes, but you specify certain recipes as being vegan. And uh, do you feel that somebody following a, the strictest of vegan diets can still improve their bone health with your uh, your protocol? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it takes a lot more effort 
because you don't have the sort of ease of raw dairy or, you know, that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, it, it definitely. You, I mean, I don't think that I provide enough of a vegan diet for you through this book alone. Right, right. Um, but the, the point being, I mean, I tried to cover all different kinds of recipes, vegetarian, vegan, meat, you know, carnivore, um, there are rest, there's a recipe from my Russian grandmother, you know, it's sort of like there's stuff all over the place. There's a lot of Japanese recipes because what I want to do is I want people to know that any, where, whatever you are, however you want to eat, there are approaches for you to take that will, will, that will improve you. And I can't give you an entire cookbook for every different type of diet, Absolutely. but I can give you indications. Yes, I'm providing vegan recipes. So you can start to think like, here are some vegan recipes. What else can I do? I'm understanding the concepts. And that's really the key for me of the book is like, these are the concepts and this is how, this is how you can, you can employ them if you choose. Right. But please, uh, the reason why the book is half science and and then half cookbook is because I started talking to people about these concepts and sharing the information that I had found and people were really excited and they were really happy. And at the end of a three hour talk, everybody would go, Oh my God, that was amazing. What do I do now? Right. 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 Absolutely. And so uh, when I started to write the book, I said, well, you know what? I don't want to just provide people with information and have everybody go, wow, that was really cool. I don't know what to do. Right. So I wrote the book as the science and then decided I'm going to show you how to start implementing the concepts that you now understand and not saying here, you need to go on this diet or here, you need to do this, but saying, again, understand the concepts and apply them to your life as they work for you. Mm, I like that. Yeah. And by the way, folks, these aren't like crappy recipes. These are not like those, <laughs> those, those recipes from the sixties, those health book recipes from the sixties with the yellowed pages and the brown text. And they were all really gross and nobody wanted to go near it. You know, like you, you ate like, you know, you the bowl of kasha or whatever it was <laughs> and then decided it wasn't for you. Um, no, these are like really, these are nice recipes. You've got some some world-class chefs to contribute. Tell us about that. How did that happen? Did you just go up to them and say, hey, I'm writing a cookbook or I yeah. ate in your restaurant <laughs> and I really like this. Can you put some maitake mushrooms in there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, I mean, Alice Waters is really, you know, the to me, I remember when she had her first restaurant. I was living in Oakland and um, it was sort of, to me, it was she was the opening to me. Uh-huh. I, I looked at that restaurant and the way that she was using food and the way that she was understanding, apparently understanding from my perspective, nutrition and the relationship of humans to the food, like everything, like everything was there. And I was like, oh my God, this is something else. This is something different than what I have been in before. <laughs> and it, and it, it appeals to me on such a base level and such an intimate level. And, um, so when I came to realizing that this needed to be a cookbook, um, yeah, it was kind of one of the first things I thought was how amazing it would be that to have that connection for me of the thing that sort of really made me feel what this was about. Right. And all these years later to have her donate a recipe and to sort of support the concept of the book was just like <laughs> mind blowing. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Because you know, there's there's this disconnect. I think for a lot of people, like 
thinking about my family in particular, um, you know, they never have a problem eating at my house. They always think it's great. But when they're sitting at home, they think that it's either one, too complicated or too, uh, too gross because it's, it's healthy. Why does it have to be healthy all the time? <laughs> and it's like, I just made you like the most kick-ass apple pie and you told me it was too healthy you know <laughs> like mm-hmm. you know, just i mean you can and i mean again you you bring a lot of surprises to this book uh you include things like sugar and you say that it's okay to have grains i mean uh, again i think part of this is your training in oriental medicine where not everything is the devil you know there's not there's not a good set of food and a bad set of food there's food and then there's junk (laughs) you know so um you know like with with sugar it's it's surprising to a lot of people that sugar could actually be therapeutic in 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 its own ways it's very funny that sugar is actually you know the herbal medicine uh materia medica of chinese herbs contains honey and contains sugar and so they are again their medicines and it's sort of like I mean, any other, any other thing that you like, you know, it's sort of like maintain some kind of relationship, moderate relationship with it right? and it won't, and it won't hurt you. And it actually can be used medicinally. Right. Right. So, right. And and, and sorry, I just wanted to speak to what you just said about sugar and honey, because in, in, I studied Chinese dietetics and, and, uh, in, Sorry, they are they they are not necessarily a swap out for one another when it comes to the medical usage or the the medicinal usage, I should say, uh, of right. of those sweeteners. So right. in the West, we would say, oh well, I'm trying to stay off sugar. Let me replace it with honey because honey is good. Yes, honey is good. But in Chinese medicine, let's say you have a cough. If it's a dry cough, you might want honey. But if mm-hmm. it's like more of a gurgly cough, you might want sugar. Right. Because it's yeah. because they have different actions on the body. One is going to, you know, dry up a little more and the other one's going to moisten you a little more. So, right. um, you know, they're seeing it from a very different, uh, perspective. And that's, that's one of the, that's again, one of those things that I really appreciate about your book is that you don't kind of leave those things, uh, up to political correctness to say yeah. that, you know, we've got to just get rid of all the sugar and let's replace it. You know, because the more we try to replace stuff, I would rather just see somebody give it up, you know, like right. don't, don't, because then you open up this Pandora's box for a lot of these food manufacturers to start experimenting on you. So I'm giving up sugar right. and then they come out with, you know, the aspartame and the agave right. syrup and the other things that you have no idea how those are being made, the high fructose corn syrup. I mean, we just, every time we vilify something, there's somebody thinking I can make money off of this. Right. <laughs> well, I think that the other point of that in, is, is that why would you ever want to start to introduce the idea of guilt or bad feeling around something that nourishes you. Absolutely. And it, I mean, as, as soon as you go down that road, you're really just, you're just setting yourself up for, you're distancing yourself from the thing that nourishes you. You're not liking, you're sort of having bad feelings about these sorts of things. And that relationship has obviously played itself out quite a lot in Western culture. There's a lot of bulimia. There's a lot of food issues and dietary issues and weight issues, obviously. Right. So I think that playing into that paradigm is just not a good idea full stop so absolutely and that's what i that's what my book uh frenching your food i don't did you ever read that uh, <laughs> that's not the one i read, I, I read. <laughs> but 
I wrote, yeah, I wrote this book called Frenching Your Food and it's about how the French adore their food and they love it and they, they treat it with passion and they, you know, they, they enjoy it for what it is. And if they eat something that sometimes they feel is not the best for them, they eat it and they move on. You know, it's not, uh, it's not forbidden and they don't necessarily, I mean, they are starting to get a lot of the, the, um, uh, really eating disorders that we have here in the U.S. Uh, now, however, traditionally growing up very close to the French community, you know, my friends would eat all kinds of stuff and I never understood how they could do it and still be so thin. And now I understand right. that a lot of it is the psychological, that they're not bringing all this anxiety to the table, that they're not feeling guilty about the cheeseburger that they ate earlier or, or, or what have you. And they're not trying to, you know, run it off at the gym <laughs> on the right. treadmill. They're, they just, right. they just do it and they move on. And it's, it's this really, uh, it demonstrates the fact that they have a consciousness about what they eat as well, because we treat it like, you know, having sex in, a, in an alley with right. somebody you don't know, right? right. right. It's, like, right. it's like, I'm just going to, I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to stand over the sink and I'm going to eat this real fast and nobody's going to see me. So I didn't do right. it. Right. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's, that's the way we look at it. And in, in their case, they're just like, okay, I'm just going to have a quick bite of this. You know, this is, oh, this tastes so good. I'm just going to bite it. And then I'm going to go on and I'll go back to work or whatever, you know, I have to do, but it's not, there's no guilt. And, you know, they think about their meals. They're playing some, there's a French person planning a meal right now you know <laughs> they're just they're I'll just always you, thinking the about French. it they're talking about lunch while they're eating breakfast and they're talking about dinner while they're eating lunch yeah <laughs> and, exactly great. and every every country that i've been to or lived in or whatever they we're always you know when i was in spain we would be on after dinner we would uh pick string beans or, or whatever we were going to eat for the next day's lunch you know, we were always thinking ahead. And it, and this is, this is, I think, the biggest disconnect that we have in the U.S., which is that we aren't planning ahead and we're not, we, we just, we just want to, uh, think about food when we're hungry and right. whoever made a good decision <laughs> <laughs> right. by so leaving true. it to the last minute, right? <laughs> so, uh, so, um, one thing that I, I wonder about when I read your book is whether or not people will could could in any way uh risk other health issues by focusing too much on their bone health and if so i guess what i'm thinking is could people get into a rut where they're like okay these are the three recipes that because they're not thinking ahead right these are the three recipes i feel comfortable with i'm just gonna make these three recipes like every week <laughs> You know, right, and, and right. for, you know, for, for 40 or 60% of my meals, uh, do we risk now throwing our thyroid off? You know, like I know that you, you do I do something that I don't normally recommend, which is soy milk. Mm -hmm. um, you well, only, you, only properly made soy milk. Correct. I mean, There's a very key component to that. Right. But, you know, is, is, does somebody who, even if it's properly made, if they're consuming that soy milk all the time, because let's say they're vegan and that's, you know, what they've chosen, uh, do they risk throwing their thyroid out of, out of balance because now they're not getting enough iodine or, or what have you? Well, yeah, again, it, de it depends. Are they eating a very heavy iodine diet? Are they on a Japanese diet and they're drinking a cup of soy milk a day? They're going to be totally fine. Right. If they're not, then they're probably, they may, they may tip the balance. I mean, that's, you know, with anything, with everything, with all diets, like you can't, there's so many foods, there's so many different nutrients, there's so many colors of fruits and vegetables, and all of them have import to the body. Right. Um, 
So you can't just eat one color vegetable, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just you just can't do that, that you're not getting all of the phytonutrients that you, your body requires. So same with anything. You can't just have one, one, two things that you eat all the time. Your body just isn't built to deal with that. Right. And, and there's, so, that speaks a lot to seasonality, you know, something that people are talking about, local movement, eating the stuff that grows around you. So these are ways that we can very handily uh, incorporate different foods into our diet. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, it's a, it takes care of it. Nature takes care of that for you. Absolutely. <laughs> Here, during this season, we're going to give you squash, right? Because right. it's dense and it's got carbs and you're going to sit around and it's going to help you be warm. You know, I mean, it's, it's it, all of the information is actually right here. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's, it's all right here. So it's just a matter of sort of listening to it. And there is a little section in the book about, about the idea of seasonality and how important it is. Um, um, so what I was thinking about when I wrote this book, when I first started was, um, was that here, okay, now I'm going to figure out what it takes to build bone. Right. And Yes, I, I have done that. And I've, you know, okay, you need this amount of copper, you need this amount of boron about sort of very trace mineral specific, all these things. Yes, you need all these things and this will build bone tissue. But the thing that, it, that, that I realized sort of coming back around to the idea is that this is one body, this is one system. And what one body says is good for your bones is not going to have a different set of ratios and nutrients that's good for your heart. It's not right. going to have a different set of ratios and nutrients that's good for your skin. So because it's one system, when you find the ideal balance where your calcium is going to your bones where it's supposed to go and not into your arteries or your joints, mm -hmm. where you know the, the nutrients are all working synchronously together, everything is working well to build your bone, by default, everything else will be working well as well. Because again, this is just one system right. with one ideal state. Right, right, absolutely, so, and and this I think is it's important to remember that yes, I that I have to, you know this book is directed at the idea of bones, and of course there are a lot of specifics to building bone tissue, but actually this is just uh, general health, and it's sort of subversive to me in that way, where it's sort of like actually by the way, <laughs> you know. Right. Right. Well, you know, one thing I've always told uh, clients over the years, because everybody wants to come to me for weight loss. And I'm like, you know what, what I do is not weight loss. Okay. <laughs> it's not, right, you know, I, right. I want you to be healthy. And we like to use weight loss as a marker of health, which I don't necessarily think it is. I know just as many skinny people who have shitty health as, as I do right. overweight people who have shitty health. Right. Uh, and sometimes even more, you know, some like well, certain populations I see, you know, everybody's skinny and they've all, but you know, how did they get that way? And so they've got the bone loss issues you know they're they're losing weight and they're losing bone that's why right. you've lost weight right. <laughs> your right. bones are light um right. and even even actually that's i noticed that a lot with children because you can pick kids up and you'll see two kids standing side by side they look pretty much the same and one you're you're in danger of like throwing across a field and the other one is kind of challenging you to pick them up and i'm like yeah this is the bone muscle density on this kid and the other one has virtually none right. uh, but what i always tell people is let's find out if there is something else we need to work on because if it, you know if it came down to just calories in calories out you probably would have done it by now right but a lot of times, though, that extra weight is on is part of an indicator of something else that's not right. 
Right. A hormonal imbalance. A hormonal imbalance. Exactly. It could be anything. Uh, And the weight is part of the indicator that your body's trying to protect itself. Right. Or that, you know, something else is not correct in your diet. And, you know, so instead of just focusing on the calories, I like to focus on the health-giving aspects of food. And then when the body feels at ease, when it's calm, when, you know, those hormones level out, then, you know, the the weight starts to peel off because the body feels like it's, you know, that fight or flight syndrome goes away and the body starts to feel at ease. And it's like, okay, I don't need to protect myself so much. Mm. I can, I can let that off. (laughs) Take (laughs) take that off my back. Now that's that's a great approach to weight loss. It's it's really good to hear. Okay, so um, you know, before I let you go, I have a couple of questions uh, from our audience. Uh, first is from Linda Hansen, and she says, "Is it true that uh, that one has an advantage of being overweight? It keeps your bones dense. Uh, that's what our GP told my mom when I was younger." Yeah, I mean, it is. It is true that it sort of very, very, very generally speaking, um, the the weight is uh, basically exercising the bones to some degree. So you do find that overweight people may have less bone loss. Um, to me, that's the uh, the trade off is not particularly good. I don't think mm-hmm. um, in in general, but yes, that is the case. Right, your GP is your GP is right. Okay. Yeah. Actually, the other question we have is pretty much the same, which is, um, she was, uh, told, uh, that people with larger skeletal structures and, and carrying extra weight on those structures were essentially doing more weight bearing exercise, just walking around than smaller people. But the doc did not recommend doing that. <laughs> to, no. Being fat to, to support your bones. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I think, again, that's not the right trade off to make. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, there is a, a school of thought, and I cannot remember. I think it was the Health Alert or the Maffetone Report, one of those uh, newsletters back in the day, uh, had. Um, had some analyses from doctors who actually looked at their data of of patients over the years. I forget if it was 10 years, 20 years, what have you. And these doctors were reporting that women who were in their 60s and 70s, I believe, I believe it was 60s and 70s, who were moderately overweight for the, the uh, height weight charts mm-hmm. actually lived longer and had overall better health outcomes. Uh, meaning that they weren't, these weren't super scrawny women. They right, were women right. who, you know, maybe just had a little curve, not, not fat by any stretch yeah. of the imagination, but had a little comfortable weight that some people may scoff at. Right. No, I mean, that's, I think that's a different situation than seeing a lot of effective bone density from weight that what you're talking about probably has, I mean, f- I certainly agree with, and I think it probably has to do with hormone production. Um, you're going to have better and increased hormone production with a little bit of extra tissue there. So you're going to have the effects, the beneficial effects of hormone of, you know, m- more balanced and more, more hormone production, even as you get older with a little bit of weight. Right. So that is going to have a wide ranging systemic effect on improving everything. Fantastic. So. Fantastic. Yeah. Are, are there any uh, tips like, you know, because this is such a fabulous book. It's about 300 pages of recipes and documentation. And like I said, they're not crappy recipes, folks. Uh, <laughs> you know, this, <laughs> and no, seriously, there are not because I have been around the block and, and a lot of uh, so-called health books. You know, I don't care if it's paleo, primal, vegan, macrobiotic. 
they're shitty. <laughs> and these are not shitty recipes. You might just want to change the name of the book. <laughs> oh, um, I mean, I mean really- it's important to me. Like you said, there's just so many books out there and it's like, there's a lot of stuff that you can do and let's get really serious and about it. And really what I want is, again, it's like, we're, we we have the stigma of the past, of the low-fat fad. You can't eat fat. You can't eat dairy. You can't eat eggs because your cholesterol is high. All of that stuff. Well, you know what? That time is over yes. now. You know, And like we know now that that's over. And Time Magazine had it on its cover, so it's definitely over. <laughs> um, so it's, it's actually what we want to do is we want to have full-fat dairy. We want to have some cholesterol in our diet. We want all of those things. We just don't want them too much, right? We don't want just to drink full-fat full milk every day all the time. Right. But we want to have these things in our diet to have a really, really rounded, full nutritional experience. And guess what? It tastes better. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so here we go. So let's, let's embrace all of those things. I, I have a friend who's a psycho, a psychotherapist. And he says, you know, when uh, you join a cult, you'll know it's a cult because they try to control your food. And okay. he, and, and it's true because once you can control someone's food, once they tell you, you can't have, you know, the fat and the dairy and all the things that your ancestors ate, people in your culture ate, you're right. dissociating yourself. Look how many people have ruined their relationships over their diet. Right. Look how many people have, you know, joined something and they sit at Thanksgiving dinner with their tofurkey and, right. a, and a grimace on their face because they can't have the <laughs> right. real thing. You know, it's, right. and, and then, you know, they have to, then they complain that they have to deal with the aunts and the uncles telling them that they should just have a little bit or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're, it is a way that people have found to segregate themselves from society. And, and that's, that's kind of tragic. So, um, again, I really do appreciate that you've written this book in such a user friendly way with uh, the uh, different uh, uh, cheat sheets and worksheets and, and things that you can understand how much you're getting. That, that was really uh, a fantastic uh, element in the book is that you, you show people how to monitor through the recipes, uh, how much calcium they're getting, how much vitamin D they're getting, how much, you know, of all the different uh, uh, key nutrients and cofactors that they're getting to support bone health. And like you said, if, if people keep it rotating and they don't focus on, well, you know, I got twice as much today as I really needed, then, right. then, you know, we're going to be in balance. Uh, and, uh, do you have any just parting words as far as what you would recommend for people to do if they wanted just that, I guess, quick start or, or not, not necessarily quick start, but they wanted to really just wrap their brain around where to start within the program? Is it just starting with, with, you know, reading the front and then choosing one recipe and adding one recipe a week, or is it something um, else? I would probably or say one recommend <laughs> them read sort of the, probably the supplement section. I would read about your bones, sort of the, sort of you can get the basic idea of why we're even talking about this. Yes. And then the supplement section. And because um, regardless of whether your nutrition comes from foods, whole foods or supplements. I mean, obviously whole foods are going to contain enzymes. They're going to be much easier for your body to absorb. They're going to be much more useful, but there are certain elements. Um, one specifically that I can talk about in the American diet presently that we just don't get. And if you look at the Japanese culture, for example, again, where they have very, they have very low, they have thin bones according to our standards, but they have very low rates of fracture comparatively. Right. Um, so there's a big difference between, again, the idea of osteoporosis, which is a measurement of density, 
and fracture, and they aren't the same thing. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole other sort of issue to discuss, um, but maybe another time. But but there is a key element in the Japanese diet, in the Asian diet o- overall, or there used to be, which is a subtype of a vitamin K. And this is just not present in the American diet. And one of the one of the ways in which calcium functions in the body is through a protein called osteocalcin. And osteocalcin needs to be activated. And it's activated with the presence of this vitamin K subtype, vitamin K2 subtype. Um, Without that, you will not have the activation of osteocalcin. You will not get proper and complete calcium deposition in the bone. So this, as soon as you add this back into the diet, this is where it's imperative to start. If you had did one thing, it would be to find the sources of vitamin K2 uh, nice. that work for you. That would be where that's number one starting point. Awesome. Awesome. That That's a, a great piece of advice. Uh, I've totally forgot to even bring K2 into the conversation because there's just so much to talk about in this book. <laughs> and it is it is really fabulous. Thank you so much for writing it. I am uh, definitely recommending it to everybody that I know. Uh, our guest heretic today is Laura Kelly, a doctor of oriental medicine, author of Healthy the, the Healthy Bones Nutrition Plan and Cookbook. Uh, do you have a website yet for the book? Um, momentarily, <laughs> it will be medicine, medicine through food.com. Okay. And through spelled all the way out, spelled out. And it looks like there's going to be a series. So I'm going to start to address very common diseases and, and, and sort of work with people how to address them through food. Fantastic. Thank you so much once again. And I look forward to having you on the show when one of your next books comes out. Thank you, Adrian. It was fun. <laughs> Thanks. Same here. Bye-bye. The Nutrition Heretic Podcast is a production of Savor the Journey, LLC. Our audio editor is Nikola Popovich. Our podcast manager is Crystal McLean, and our operations manager is Linda Hansen. I'm your host, Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. You can find us at nutritionheretic.com, where you can download the Nutrition Heretic's free shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague. You can also listen to previous episodes at nutritionheretic.com slash podcast. Be sure to like us on social media for updates. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash nutritionheretic and on Twitter at NutriHeretic. Contact us with show ideas, questions, or if you just want to be a guest. And don't forget to rate our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks. Thanks.